Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finale with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today where we talk about all the issues in politics and the life science industry. I am very excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Harlan Ullman, who's a former advisor to the Pentagon and has served as a senior advisory group to uh, for the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Uh, looking forward to talking with Dr. Ullman in a few moments. Uh, before we do, though, let's talk about what's been going on in the world. Uh, Vladimir Putin's propaganda engine is really uh, in high gear uh, in Russia, convincing his people that, you know, the Russians are the good guys. They're out there uh, protecting uh, the Russian people from Nazism and uh, all these other ludicrous claims, which um, it's just one thing when we look at when we look at social media, I think all of us could kind of roll our eyes at, you know, how it can have a negative effect. But one of the nice things uh, we're seeing or not maybe not nice is not the right word. One of the important things we're seeing is uh, the positive effects of social media to bring us uh, effectively right into Ukraine to see the really the horrendous uh, activities that the Russian soldiers, uh, the Russian generals, and you know Vladimir Putin himself are uh, imparting on these Ukrainian people. And you know when we see the Ukrainian people's reaction, uh, it's you know on the, the one hand it's heartbreaking to see what's going on, but uh, more importantly, it's just inspiring to see uh, a group of people fighting for their lives, fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom. I think it's an inspiration for the U.S., for all of Europe. Uh, and it's just really uh, just, you know, through all this horrendous imagery that we're seeing come out there, there's uh, there is a very positive message that we can take out of this. Uh, President Zelensky, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, has really been doing his tour around uh, the Europe and going to leaders of in the U.S. of Congress. He spoke to Congress yesterday and invoked Pearl Harbor. Uh, he spoke to uh, the German parliament today and invoked uh, Never Again, which is the uh, sort of that saying that uh, came out after World War II. Uh, and President Zelensky himself has really been an inspiration to people, <laughs> rallying his people uh, and not only surprising the West, but I'm sure shocking Putin because you know, we've, we've heard information that he thought this was going to be a 15-day event. And certainly, uh, you know, I think it's been calling it an embarrassment for the Russians is probably an understatement. Uh, when we look at, you know, everything going on in the world, though, you know, we really, uh, there's there's just such an important message that's coming out of here. We have these, a lot of social issues in the U.S. that we kind of take for granted. And when we look at the underlying issues that the Ukrainians are fighting for, it really brings to bear 
uh, in our minds about, you know, what's really important. So one of the great messages that's coming out of this is, you know, all these political squabbles that we have, all these social and cultural issues, issues that we have. The reason that's all available is because of people like President Zelensky, people in the United States that make that all possible. And most importantly, uh, people like Dr. Allman, who serve this country and continue to serve this country. Dr. Allman, thank you so much for joining us today. Being good to be with you. Thank you. So when we look at, you know, everybody, I think, is kind of trying to Monday morning quarterback this situation in the Ukraine. You know, when I look at this, you know, I think, you know, the, the President Biden has really had a very methodical approach to this. Uh, I think it's I mean, he's doing his best, obviously, to keep to protect the U.S., to protect Europe, to keep us out of a war with Russia. You know, when we look at this situation, um, can you find any problems in the, the way that President Biden has been uh, moving forward uh, let me put it this way, because <clears throat> this is a war and one wants to remain loyal to the commander in chief. But and I say, but had I been advising him, I would have called for a more aggressive program to take the initiative away from Vladimir Putin. It seems to me that you don't take anything off the table. Uh, while Putin has threatened the use of nuclear weapons, he's not going to use them. Because if he did, they would do as much damage to Russia as they would to Ukraine. And the flow of the wind would take all the radiation over Russia and China. And so I think I would have stressed our conventional overwhelming capability, especially seeing how poorly Russian forces have performed so far in Ukraine, the NATO. NATO spends at least 10 to 15 times more on defense than Russia does. NATO has more than five times the number of fighter aircraft about five times the number of troops in uniform and reserves as Russia. It has about 350 submarines compared to about 50 to Russia. So in every single category in conventional forces, NATO is overwhelming. I also would point out that the United States should make Russia aware that because of our precision strike capability, we could take down the entire Russian logistical network and command and control system that Russia now has in Ukraine, which would end the offensive, and we probably could do it in just a couple of days' worth of strikes. I'm not saying we should do that. What I am saying is that Putin has had the initiative, and we have been saying what we will not do. We needed to suggest what we can do. Now, this war may be winding down. Uh, having been a veteran of Vietnam, <clears throat> there were so many lights at the end of so many tunnels one gets to be cynical. And so whether these peace negotiations are they're going anywhere or whether they're just cover uh, for Russia to regroup, we don't know. But obviously, one hopes that there'll be some kind of a ceasefire. And what we have to realize is that if there is some kind of a peace arrangement, that all sides are going to have to make concessions. There's not going to be any winner. This, not, this cannot be a zero-sum game. And no matter who would be president today, uh, the United States is going to make some concessions, and that will lead to political opponents accusing the president of appeasement, of being a chamberlain going to Munich in 1938, which would be unfair, but it's the nature of politics. So as this thing winds down, uh, the political battles will heat up in America, especially with the November election drawing closer. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. We've heard a lot about the 
uh, President Zelensky's really been pleading with Europe and pleading with the U.S. about this uh, no-fly zone to provide these uh, these MiGs from Poland. And, you know, the U.S. is certainly providing a tremendous amount of, of support. And, you know, just yesterday we heard the U.S. was uh, providing S-300s and potentially switchblade drones. What do you... Th- what what do you think, you know, U.S. European Command said that these, one of the analysis they made was it wouldn't matter if we gave these MiGs to the Ukraine. What's your opinion on that? You know, it seems like that's that's a, a red line for President Biden. He does, he thinks that would escalate things a lot. What, what's your position on that? Well, I don't think people have looked into this uh, closely enough. But first, we could get the MiGs to Ukraine. I mean, the smartest way to do that would be to have Ukrainian pilots who are accustomed accustomed to flying MiGs come to uh, Poland and pick them up. However, are those MiGs serviceable? Are there enough repair parts and supply parts? Do the Ukrainians have the ability, if they were to get them, to use them? And so I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think that those are very real questions. Second, the role of the MiGs, should Ukraine be able to get and fly them, is not to compete in the air. Its role is to be able to take on long-range Russian rockets and artillery that outguns and outranges Ukrainian systems. That's why they need it, because at this stage, the Russians have an advantage in range over their long-range fires. That's where the MiG-29s would be used, in my mind. Whether or not MiG-29s indeed are viable tactical options, I don't know, but it's something that's not been raised, and it should be. We, we heard this morning that the uh, unmanned aircraft and drones have been, you know, flying over NATO airspace. And, you know, that's a provocation, obviously. You know, as I mentioned, and we know President Biden's been trying to take a methodical approach and not get us directly involved with Russia. What, where do you think that, that red line is? Uh, or how do we cross that red line? Uh, is there anything that you think makes President Biden engage directly and the U.S. engage directly with Russia? Uh, I don't think so, but I don't think there's anything that Russia would do to engage with the United States. I've not heard reports of the drones, but I have a very, very simple solution. Any aircraft or drone that flies over my territory, I'm going to shoot down. This is what Turkey did in, in 2015, and it taught the Russians a lesson. Uh, so <clears throat> I think that that is the right of self-defense in its sovereign territory. <clears throat> um, so I don't. I think we should just exclude the notion of any red lines, um, just like we shouldn't be talking about World War III. Unfortunately, we have, and I think we should just uh, cease making that reference. You know, you referenced earlier the peace talks that uh, are, you know, have been going on uh, sporadically. Is you know, at the end of this, is it possible for, for Ukraine to to effectively, I mean, I think a lot of people want to know, can Ukrainians win this situation? And I don't mean, um, you know, with peace in the sense of, you know, giving up uh, Crimea or giving up, you know, what Russia has already taken. Is there a, a way that Ukraine basically pushes Russia back without the U.S.'s help and, and effectively, you know, quote unquote, wins this? Um. The way, the way that Ukraine wins this is the way the North Vietnamese beat us, and that's not to lose. They have to persist. Now, I think that however this winds up, I think that parts of Ukraine, even more than Crimea, are likely to be partitioned. And I think if Ukraine does accept 
some kind of neutrality stance, that would not be a bad ending, but they need to have the right of self-defense. And then, of course, rebuilding is going to be a colossal job, and the European Union is going to have to undertake a good measure of that. The interesting question will be, even if Ukraine maintains a neutral status, what does that mean for its relations both with Russia and, of course, with the European Union? Those will be have to work, have to be worked out because you don't want to have a ticking time bomb in place where Russia could do this again. So, um, as Churchill said, we're not at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, uh, we even before then. And so this particular stage for these discussions, this is hopefully the beginning of the end. Uh, at best, though, however, it may be the end of the beginning with a lot more to go before we actually see the stage, the state of those negotiations. But having said that, Dean, and I hope we'll get to some larger issues. As you know, I've written a new book uh, called The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation in the World at Large. And in this book, I have three chapters actually on Russia, the USSR, and China, and President Xi, and President Putin. And I go very, very deeply into the psychology, cultural, and societal background of both leaders. I did not predict, in fact, I thought Putin would not be stupid enough to go into Ukraine. But I think what people need to know is that 20 years of resentment has built up in Putin, which led him to take this irresponsible (laughs) and criminal action. But he had had enough with the West. And unless we understand that not everybody thinks the way we do, uh, there are going to be future situations, as I outline in my book, where we're going to be caught short. The other point is that Americans do not understand that the bulk of Russians are behind President Putin. And Americans will say, well, how can that be? We're watching this stuff on television, which is nightmarish, children, babies, women being killed on a daily basis. And the point is that all publics follow their government usually. I mean, think about Vietnam. How long did the American public support the Vietnam War, even though it started, at least the incident, that never took place of alleged PT boat attacks against U.S. destroyers, uh, never happened. And how many Americans believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction? So we have to realize that as the Russians believe their government, most countries believe their government until they don't. And so that's going to be an interesting issue because how Putin will have to reconcile the poor performance of his army with the attitudes of his public is something that we need to uh, understand because that can further complicate these issues. Now, I obviously don't go into the war in my book, although I do have a a scenario in which the Russians take over Serpent Island, which belongs to Ukraine, and it's located in the very, very western end of the Black Sea. Uh, But I do lay out uh, a number of disruptors that can prove far more dangerous than what's happening in Ukraine, the top of which is failed and failing government. Uh, Yesterday, the Senate may have achieved its crowning accomplishment in passing legislation to make daylight savings time permanent. But in terms of really important legislation, Congress is broken. And similarly, when you take a look at the executive branch, uh, and this is irrespective of whomever Republican or Democrat uh, is in charge, uh, we just cannot get things done. And the book goes into great detail about how we actually fix our political process. And I'll give your listeners something to smile at. I can fix Congress overnight with one simple step. 
that probably is impossible. As your listeners know, and you know, CEOs of public corporations have to state under penalty of the law that all the declarations they're making about accounts, about balance sheets, profit and losses have got to be certified as accurate by the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Well, why then can't members of Congress be required to say before they vote on a piece of legislation that they have read and understood it? Now, people will laugh when they hear that, but why can't we do that? Now, the argument will be, well, you know, the appropriations bill is 4,000 pages long. I don't have time or I can't get through it. Why should I have to? Well, the point is get another line of work. And about the size of these bills, in 1973, when Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense for the first time, the Defense Appropriations Bill was about 90 pages long. Now it's two and a half thousand pages in the Senate and almost 4,000 pages in the House. This is ridiculous. I make this point, even though it can't be done, just to demonstrate there are some steps that we can take uh, to force government to work, because quite frankly, government is not working. And that is one of the major disruptors to American society. Now, this is not going to lead to an implosion that ruined the Soviet Union or indeed an implosion that could wreck China. But it will mean that the standard of living that most Americans will have is in decline. And the American promise that was available to most Americans will be in less demand and less achievable in the future unless we get hold of things like debt, uh, social issues and other things, education that are tearing this country apart. Now, this will not happen overnight. And my solution to this is what I call a national infrastructure investment fund. Now, as your listeners know, Congress has approved and the president has signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. But that's not big enough. And I'm very, very worried about who's going to oversight it. because government is not very good. I call for raising 3 or $4 trillion through bond issues, just like war bonds. But these are different. They will pay, say, 2% over prime which is pretty good these days, guaranteed by the U.S. government. But they will be paid back not only by tolls and user fees, but you may recall during the 2008 financial crisis, government passed the Troubled Asset Relief Program of uh, nearly a trillion dollars. But what it did do when it made American banks go public, it took a slice of equity in convertible debt. And so when the banks came out of the crisis, the banks had gained in their, in, their, in their value, and so the government made several hundred billions of dollars. I would argue that when government invests in infrastructure, broadly defined, this would be on roads and bridges and so forth, but in science and technology and pharmaceuticals, healthcare, uh, artificial intelligence and the like, it takes a piece of equity. So when these companies do well, the government gets paid back. And then if you roll in the $1.2 trillion that's already been passed, you are three or four trillion dollars. That's about 10 percent of our GDP. That's a humpy, unhealthy chunk. And that will raise the standards of living productivity uh, for all Americans. That's the big fix that over time, I think, will help put the country together. But beyond that, <clears throat> if we don't, we're headed in the wrong direction in my mind. Dr. Allman, that's great insight. Thank you so much for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. Dr. Harlan Ullman is a senior advisor at Washington, D.C.'s Atlantic Council, chairman of two private companies and principal author of the Doctrine of Shock and Awe. Dr. Ullman's a former Naval 
personnel and commanded a destroyer in the Persian Gulf and led over 150 missions and operations in Vietnam as a swift boat operator. And he has a new book out, and I strongly recommend you reach out and uh, grab his new book or pick it up online uh, and check it out. Dr. Allman, thank you so much for joining us today and all that really just critical information that you provided to our listeners. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. And thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. It's a pleasure having you. I hope you found that uh, interview with Dr. Allman interesting and informative. I certainly did. Uh, We look forward to talking to everyone shortly and have a great day and be safe. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 